The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. The end of the first week of a global humiliation. Everyone, well, almost everyone in Kabul is behaving normally. The Taliban are doing what conquering armies who happen to be hardcore Sharia enforcers do. If you've spent five, ten minutes getting yourself up to speed on these guys, nothing they're doing will surprise you. The French and the British and various other countries are also behaving normally. Their troops landed at the airport and then fanned out into the city to extract their nationals. As the difficulty of getting to Hamid Karzai International increases, the Germans, for example, uh, today sent out uh, helicopters to bring their citizens from wherever they are to the terminal. Door-to-door exfiltration from an enemy capital is miserable, but a German civilian was shot and wounded trying to get to the airport, and a close relative of a reporter for the Deutsche Welle network was shot and killed downtown. So what are you going to do? As I said, Taliban behaving normally, behaving as you'd expect French, as you'd expect, Australians, as you'd expect. The only people not behaving normally are the Americans. The Americans have 6,000 troops all holed up at the airport, not venturing beyond the perimeter. Why? If you're an American citizen in Kabul, you have to go online to yourscrewed.gov, make three attempts to fill in the form, wait till the website crashes, and then try again in the morning. The U.S. State Department has been charging U.S. citizens $2,000 for the evacuation flight and more for uh, green heart card holders and third-party nationals or whatever – Which is odd because the supposed federal law they were relying on supposedly requires evacuees to pay for the cost of the flight. And it costs exactly the same to fly the daughter of the American Revolution in seat 2A and the Afghan janitor from the Jalalabad consulate in seat 2B. The State Department spokesboob in Washington today assured us that this interesting priority of an entirely dysfunctional government has now been abandoned. But Americans on the ground say, no, 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 if you can succeed in getting through to your screwed.gov, you're still required to sign a promissory note uh, paying $2,000 and more for the evacuation. So the French, the fellows Americans make jokes about, the cheese-eating surrender monkeys. Well, what's the other one? Uh, going to war without the French is like going hunting without an accordion, etc., etc. Uh, The French paratroopers are going door to door to get their guys. 6,000 American troops are holed up at the airport processing evacuees' MasterCard payments, plus the $30 per bag surcharge for any checked luggage. So I ask in all seriousness, who are the Americans working for? The United States military has the most sophisticated technology on Earth. As you know, they laugh at the Krauts and Frogs and Brits for not having the -the state-of-the-art toys that they have. And so the Yanks gave all their state-of-the-art toys to the Taliban. So the Taliban now have more Black Hawk helicopters than the Australian Armed Forces. I ask again, who are the Americans working for? 
Uh, meanwhile, in return for billions of dollars worth of equipment, not to mention the second most expensive embassy building in the entire history of embassies, are the Taliban reciprocating in any way? No, apparently not. At the usual awful Potemptagon press conference, the wretched flack with the anguished dancing eyebrows, Kabul Kirby, and the usual parade general with diversity ribbons all down his chest till they're dangling off his bollocks. What's this guy's name? Uh, these people should be more famous. Uh, here we are. Major General Hank Taylor. Uh, Kabul Kirby and Tailspin Taylor twice refused to deny that the U.S. operation is now dependent on paying the Taliban for aviation fuel. And just to follow up, how are you fueling your planes, the C-17s that are going out? Are you now in a position that you have to buy fuel from the Taliban? Um, the assets uh, on HKIA, uh, on the airfield, are uh, what we need uh, to maintain the operations, all operations, to support the mission. So that's a no, you're not buying fuel from the Taliban? There, there's there's uh, plenty of fuel su sustainment capability at uh, Hamid Karzai uh, Airport. Yeah. A lot of American fuel at Bagram, but that all ended up with the Taliban. Maybe the Potemtagon are actually paying the Taliban to sell them back American fuel. And actually, that's not a bad symbolic end to a war on terror that began with aviation fuel exploding in American skyscrapers. I ask again, who are the Americans working for? Technological dominance. The U.S. uses something called HIDE, handheld interagency identity detection equipment. These things are about 6 by 12 inches. They store the biometric data, uh, retinal scans, fingerprints, uh, plus a photograph and biographical information. These are little 6 by 12 handheld devices that store the biometric data of all the Americans, Afghan contractors and staff. The BBC reports that at least some of these devices have fallen into the hands of the enemy and the Taliban have already been seen using them on some of their remarkably well-informed house calls. Who are the Americans working for? What the Taliban are doing makes sense from the Taliban's point of view. What the French, uh, the UK, the Germans, the Aussies, the Belgians, the Dutch are doing makes sense from their point of view. What the Potemptagon is doing makes no sense unless you assume that they're now working for the enemy. US abandonment of allies is nothing new. Shortly after the fall of Saigon, Syria invaded Lebanon. And Henry Kissinger was flown to Damascus to lay down the law to the dictator, Assad. Daddy Assad, not the present one. And uh, Assad laughed in Kissinger's face and told him, you've betrayed Vietnam, someday you're going to sell out Taiwan, and we're going to be around when you get tired of Israel. Funny. Pretty funny. Laugh a minute, dictator. But that's just business as usual. What's happening right now is not merely the abandonment and betrayal and sellout of foreigners who've outlived their usefulness, but of Americans. One more time. Who are these guys? The Potemptagon? The State Department? Who are these guys working for? 
Of course you can ask that domestically too. I see a federal judge, one Miranda Du, uh, D-U, a jurist who, um, as it happens, is herself an immigrant from Vietnam. Judge Du has just ruled that it's unconstitutional to deport illegal aliens convicted of felonies because the law is based on, quote, racist nativist roots that discriminate against Latinx people. Did you see that C-17 loaded up with strapping young Afghan lads headed stateside? In 30 years' time, one of them will be a federal judge explaining why the only people it's constitutional to deport are the last three American citizens in Texas. Who are the Americans working for? As we'll hear in Mark's mailbox, several Mark Stein Club members have commented that they generally subscribe to the cock-up theory of history rather than conspiracy, but that so much of what's happened in Afghanistan is so unprecedentedly bizarre that cock-up alone cannot explain it. What was the last significant act of the American occupiers? At a time when the US was preparing to abandon Bagram to its enemies, at a time when the diplomatic staff should have been pre-processing those $2,000 Amex payments so fleeing Americans could access the express checkout line at Hamid Karzai International Airport. The U.S. Embassy decided to celebrate Pride Month throughout June and fly its LGBT QWERTY flag. Now, a lot of fellas in America and Canada, Denmark, New Zealand are very into the LGBT QWERTY and good luck to them. But whether you're into the Taliban or whether you favour the restoration of the Afghan monarchy or whether you fall anywhere else on the political spectrum, the number of people in Kabul who dig the LGBT QWERTY is very minimal. It's not just a provocation. It reminds the citizenry that their government reflects the values of the occupier, not the Afghan people. Why would you do that in the June of 2021? As I say, who are the Americans working for? And if you assume that they're working for America's enemies, what would they have done differently? In a sane world, Lloyd Austin, the hack lobbyist presently serving as Defence Secretary, and thoroughly modern Millie, the critical race theory enthusiast who heads the Chief of Staff, they'd already be gone. Many conservative pundits are calling for them to quit, forgetting that in a pseudo-republic without honour, no one resigns for anything, as uh, we learned after 9-11. In a functioning polity, Austin and Millie would be standing in a courtyard having their epaulets torn off and all their arseholy and diversity ribbonry and being demoted to privates. I used my uh, thoroughly modern Millie line on Tucker a month or so back, and a week or two later, my friend Alexander, who is one of the presiding geniuses of that show, was so tickled by it that he ordered up a thoroughly modern Millie graphic that they use every time they mention him. It's from Dear Old Julie Andrews. Great movie, of course. There are those, I suppose, think we're mad. Heaven knows the world has gone to rack and to ruin. What we think is chic, unique, and quite adorable. They think he's odd and sodom and gomorable. But the fact is everything today is thoroughly modern. Check your personality, everything today may 
makes yesterday slow. Go, Julie. Uh, by the way, part of the plot of Thoroughly Modern Millie involves girls being kidnapped as sex slaves. <laughs> so it's more relevant to what's going on in Kabul than you might think. Anyway... I keep getting emails saying, come on, Stein, you can't just keep calling him General Thoroughly Modern Millie. Where's the usual big production number? Well, I'm not really cut out for the full Julie Andrews, but let's have the wretched Millie set the scene. On the issue of critical race theory, etc., I'll, I'll obviously have to get much smarter on whatever the theory is. Um, but I do think it's important, actually, uh, for those of us in uniform to be open-minded and be widely read. And the United States Military Academy is a university. Uh, and it is important that we train and we understand. Uh, and I, I want to understand white rage. And I'm white. And I want to understand it. And I personally find it offensive that we are accusing the United States military, our general officers, our commissioned, non-commissioned officers, of being, quote, woke or something else because we're studying some theories that are out there. <laughs> I suppose the thing they're mad Heaven knows the world has gone To rack and to ruin What we once thought odd and Sodom and Gomorrah They now invoke as woke and quite adorable But the fact is every general now is thoroughly modern Intersectionality, every general now is anxious to trend No need for reality, just screw the mission and transition instead. You raised your pride flag right up that pole before you fled. I'm the chiefs of staff, the world is so cozy. If it seems they cage you just because they blew another big war. Don't be so white rage so long. Straight shooting guy, he's wokier than thou. So beat the drums, cause here comes the really modern. Central Command submitted a variety of plans that were briefed and approved by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Secretary of Defense, and the President. These plans were coordinated, synchronized, and rehearsed. There was nothing that I or anyone else saw that indicated a collapse of this Army and this government in 11 days. Every general now is thoroughly modern. Lobbyists are flirtier. Every general now is letting it fly. LGBT quotier. Oh, do stop sniggering. You're triggering them. He's due at West Point to teach systemic racism. He don't need no book by General Clausewitz. Way too dialectical, Ibram X Kendi in every kid bag. Won't miss till he's wrecked it all. White rage is all the rage, he's on it and how. So beat the drums, cause here comes thoroughly modern A lot of syllables in that. 
may have to uh, may have to do a bit of rewriting. I despise Billy and the guys in the Potemptagon. And if you don't, you're part of the problem. Yesterday, Thursday, an Afghanistan veteran was laid to rest in the cemetery at Randolph, Vermont, not too far from where I am in New Hampshire. You won't know his name, Corey Green, but you should know that he committed suicide. The people who lined the bridges to salute his memory as his coffin passed under should revile Austin and Millie and all the other loathsome husks who dishonoured his service. As for the Taliban, what a crowd, already arresting little girls for being out on the streets without their facial coverings and then spraying chemicals into their eyes to force them to submit. Oh, no, wait, sorry. That's not Afghanistan. That's Australia. So my sister's, my sister's getting arrested because she has no mask, but there's other people with masks and they're not uncuffing her. So look at this. Look at this. Look at this. And then they'll grab my sister. Look at this. Look at this. The massed ranks of the New South Wales Constabulary pepper spraying a young girl for being outside without a mask. The wanker coppers dispatched to take her down included at least one officer who was maskless himself. But because he is an agent of the state, he's free to afflict the citizenry for not abiding by laws that do not apply to him. The New South Wales Police is also boasting that they've just got a 29-year-old bloke uh, given an eight-month jail sentence for helping to plan a protest against lockdown scheduled for this weekend. We don't know whether it will go ahead, but just because he was in on the organising of it, He's being incarcerated at Her Majesty's pleasure for at least three months. Perhaps that amusing press secretary for the Taliban can work some of this into his act. Uh, will you commit to not mandating facial coverings? Why don't you ask that of the Australian government? Is it true that women will be forced to stay at home by order of the state? Why don't you ask for it? The New South Wales police are our Commonwealth wanker coppers of the day. Let's give them. The full wanker. Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker? Who's the wanker in the blue hat? Who's the wanker in the big blue hat? Mark's mailbox is on the air. A lot of interesting missives from Mark Stein Club members at the end of a grim week. Uh, Charles Sharpless. Let's let's uh, run through a few of the ones that caught my eye. Charles Sharpless, a Stein Clubber from Alabama, says, as a former low-level enlisted man during America's last semi-successful, yeah, OK, but we didn't lose, lose conflict, Desert Storm. That's 30 years ago now. My experience with large-scale operations such as would have been required for an orderly withdrawal from Afghanistan, are admittedly limited and was observed from a very narrow scope and with a 19-year-old's eyes. Another point not in my favour. However, knowing that, uh, 
A soldier will typically face stringent disciplinary action for losing or misplacing even the most rudimentary piece of kit. Yet we abandoned untold military riches without a thought. His second point: going AWOL as a soldier or as a commander, not knowing the whereabouts of your soldiers, would be unthinkable. Yet we don't know how many Americans are still in theater. Third point: We had a secured airbase, yet we abandoned it in favor of a civilian airport in a large metro area to boot. I can't help but come to the conclusion that what we're seeing was intentional, not incompetence, and it would take an extraordinary amount of explanation to convince me otherwise. Those are all very、uh, good points, and when you take into account the fact that. The Biden administration and Biden himself, their principal argument is they were boxed in, locked in uh, by uh, the bad orange man Trump, so that they had no choice in this matter. That means, in effect, that ever since January twentieth, they've known、uh, that they would be getting out. So the idea that they suddenly have to scramble. And they have to leave all this stuff, turning the Taliban into one of the most powerful military forces on the planet, is、uh, is completely、uh, unconvincing. You're right about that. Also, the bloated U.S. embassy in Kabul, not knowing, not even being able to give a a, a convincing ballpark figure on how many Americans have been buggered by them. Colin Bastable. Uh, who's a first weekend founding member of the Sign Club from Texas? Colin says、uh, the U.S. military, having this is the point we were just talking about, having given away Bagram, is staying inside the airport, Kabul, whilst British paras are being the cavalry going into Kabul and rescuing people. This is designed chaos. It is impossible to do anything this badly all at once, even for the U.S. military. In such situations, it is usually cock up, not. Conspiracy at the heart of it. Not in this case. Not at the southern border. Not with the Chinese Communist Party virus. We are in full Obama destroy it and rebuild it mode. Eric Dale, an Iowa member of the Stein Club. Eric had、uh, <laughs> that marvelous、uh, comment which I put in a column the other day, in which he said, "Why don't we get the Taliban to teach at West Point? It would make a nice change for the cadets to hear from somebody who'd actually won a war." Uh, Eric says one of the explanations being given for the Afghan military's rapid collapse is that we train them to call in air support when in battle. Without air support, they are unable to fight. This begs the question: How will the U.S. military perform if air support is not given? This is correct. You know, they're going through a valley, and somebody starts firing at you from the hill、uh, on the side of the valley, and so you call in air support, and the air support take out the guy who's firing at you, and that's all fine and dandy, except that the U.S. military, when they pulled out a Bagram. Then pulled out all the contractors who serviced the planes, so the Afghan air force was unable to fly. But beyond that, why are we teaching an army? Well, actually, why is the U.S. Army teaching any army? Because it hasn't won anything in three quarters of a century. Why would you want to learn from them? Parade generals, parade generals.、Um, why are we teaching them? 
uh, a, a, a form of war- warfare that is the luxurious indulgence of only the most lavishly funded militaries in recent decades. For, throughout human history, uh, if, you're, if you're fighting for your territory, you've had to do so without air support. Why would you teach the Afghan army? Oh, God. I mean, you know, as uh, Colin Bastable says, this much can't all go wrong at once unless it... Here's Rick Vinus, San Antonio. He's a first-month founding member of the Mark Stein Club from that great city in Texas. And Rick says... I hope I pronounced your name right, by the way, uh, Rick, if not my apologies. He says, uh, during a training brie... A training brie... Uh, uh, I hope that's uh, I hope that's not lit. Is, is it true that General Milley holds a wine and cheese party before starting the war? Um, anyway, he says. Uh, Rick says during a a trading briefing before my first deployment. I think yeah, I think that's what he means. Uh, our superiors quoted a chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Ooh, Admiral Mullen, who said that. We can't kill our way to victory in the war on terror. I piped up that every war in history had been won by killing enough enemy to destroy his will and or ability to fight. And I asked why this war was different. I caused quite a stir, got no answer to my question and felt like I was maybe the crazy one. Turns out our new way wasn't as sound as the old tried and true way. I think I think this is... You know, wars boil down to who wants it more. Teaching your soldiers not to want it, why be surprised it turned out like this? You know, war is all about will, all about will. It's, uh, as I've I've, uh, uh, said a thousand times since this thing began, and actually I was thinking about this uh, in Iraq on the main uh, western highway uh, from the Jordanian and Syrian borders down to Baghdad. And my little rental car, and I came across a burnt-out tank. And it was sitting there uh, on the road. I it, The the road, they put craters in, dropped bombs on the road and everything. And I was looking at th- this tank that had just been left there, burnt out, and uh, with the bodies still inside. Um, and I was thinking... Uh, about Basil Little Hart's famous line that it's not about destroying the enemy's tanks, it's about destroying the enemy's will. And actually, if you destroy the enemy's tanks without destroying the will, what you wind up with is the American War on Terror, where you take 20 years to replace the Taliban with the Taliban and uh, to thank him for letting you occupy his country for 20 years, you give him a whole new set of tanks. I'm, I'm getting too angry to express my contempt here. Why would you expect an army that, that is taught at West Point, its officer class is taught at West Point, critical race theory? What the hell has that got to do? As you say, Rick... Our new way wasn't as sound as the old tried and true way. One more from Veronica. Veronica, I should say, by the way, is one of our Kiwi members. Why would they ever leave that stuff behind? Why not burn every document in sight, smash every flash drive and computer? Heck, just put a match to the whole building rather than allow it and its secrets to fall into enemy hands. 
Is this just madness or is there method in it? I can't decide. There are, yeah, we, we've conflated the two. But there are really two things here, Veronica. So that right now with what they're sitting on, if the, if the Taliban wanted to, uh, for example, attack your country, New Zealand, uh, they've, they could, they've got a better military and they could probably uh, take you guys out in nothing flat. And then the other thing is the secrets. It's almost as if the United States has, uh, has decided to screw everybody over far more comprehensively than it ever does before. So every little rinky-dink guy who, who just provided a, a few sandwiches at lunchtime uh, to some American troops hither and yon has got to be in the database so the Taliban can, can find him. Absolutely disgraceful. Why is Millie still there? God, where are the Republicans on this? Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A new king in Belgrade, a new king in Baghdad, but no new republic in Baranya. It's August 1921. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update, the messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The brand new Baranya Baja Republic on the Hungarian border with Serbia has collapsed after just six days and Admiral Horty's men have reincorporated its territory into Hungary. Washington and Vienna have signed a treaty ending the state of war between the United States and Austria just three years after the actual enemy the Austro-Hungarian Empire ceased to exist. The kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes has a new monarch. King Alexander took the oath of accession from his hospital bed in Paris, where he is being treated for appendicitis. His stricken majesty said, I proclaim to my dear people that I shall be faithful to my father's ideals and shall watch over the constitutional liberties and rights of citizens and defend the unity of the state. He added, being prevented by illness from attending the obsequies of my father and exercising the royal authority, I charge my cabinet to act for me in the exercise of the royal power and to follow my instructions until my return to the country. In Berlin, police burst into the apartment of Karl Grossmann after neighbours reported hearing screams and then silence. They found a young woman dead on his bed and bloodstains indicating other persons had recently been killed there. Herr Grossmann is believed to have murdered and dismembered at least 20 women, throwing their bones into the canal near Andreasplatz and using their flesh for the sausages he sold at the food stand near the train station. The treaty creating the Permanent Court of International Justice has come into effect following the 24th vote to ratify it from the government of Spain. Whether it enjoys widespread international support is doubtful. A quarter of those ratifying votes are from Great Britain and the British Dominions.
brings terror in the Malabar region of India. A rebellion is underway and preliminary reports say that two British officers and nine Indian officials are dead at Tiruvannagadi. The rebels are attacking not only Englishmen serving the Raj, but also the high-caste Hindus on whom the King Emperor's local administration relies. Muslim men are demanding Hindus convert to Islam or be killed. Following the British-backed coup by Reza Khan and the Persian Cossack Brigade earlier this year, rebels from the opposing pro-Bolshevik Republic of Gilan have now been forced to abandon the town of Rasht in Persia. The Emir of Riyadh, Abdul Aziz ibn Saud, has proclaimed a new Sultanate of Nejd in the Arabian Peninsula. He is thought to have broader territorial designs. Do you like these Hashemite princes? A lot of British chaps are very partial to them. They've just installed one of them, Faisal, as king in Baghdad to rule the new British League of Nations mandate in Mesopotamia. As to that other British mandate, Prime Minister Lloyd George and his cabinet have been meeting to discuss whether to maintain the commitment made in the Balfour Declaration to create a Jewish state in the ancient Jewish homeland in Palestine. The Secretary of State for the Colonies, Mr Winston Churchill, has received intelligence that both Arabs and Jews are securing weapons in preparation for a war in the territory. The Prime Minister invited his cabinet to consider whether to withdraw from the Balfour Declaration and create an Arab government similar to that in Baghdad, or to pursue the declaration and create a Jewish army in Palestine. The British Isles have their own sectarian divisions. Because of the rebellion in Ireland, it was not possible to take a census there. In Great Britain, however, the population is estimated at 42,767,530. Because of losses during the Great War, women now outnumber men by 22 million to 20 million. Wait till you get them up in the air, boys. Wait till you get them up in the air. You can make them hug and squeeze you too. Or if they don't, just say you won't come down until they do. The world's largest airship, R-38, was up in the air. It was scheduled to be delivered this month from Britain to its new owners, the US Navy, and was undergoing a few final trial flights from the Howden Air Station in Yorkshire. After a full day aloft, the R-38 exploded in mid-air and fell into the Humber estuary. 44 of its 49-man crew are dead, among them Royal Air Force Commodore Edward Maitland, a great aviation pioneer and promoter of balloons and airships in particular. In the Prime Minister's office in Latvia, Maxim Litvinov, the Soviet Union's foreign minister, and Walter Lloyd Brown of the American Relief Administration have signed the terms of an agreement for the Americans to provide aid to relieve the starving Russians 
in the Russian famine. This is the first ever agreement between the United States and the Bolshevik regime. In the dear old Southland of the United States, Frank Martin, a Negro accused of the sexual assault of a white schoolteacher in Tennessee, was taken to the Knox County Jail. A lynch mob, 3,000 strong, then surrounded the jailhouse and demanded Mr. Martin be surrendered to their custody. Sheriff William Kate came outside and warned the crowd not to cross an imaginary line between two telegraph poles. When a dozen of the men defied him, Sheriff Kate and four deputies fired shotguns into the air and were in turn fired upon by some of the mob. The deputies returned fire, wounding at least 26 people. Dimitrios Rallis was Prime Minister of Greece for the first time in the 1890s and most recently was Prime Minister of Greece just this past February. It was his ministry that oversaw the plebiscite that returned King Constantine to the throne. Mr Rallis is dead at the age of 81. Sir Samuel Cleland Davidson started in his father's tea business in Assam Uh, which pioneered the tea industry in India and helped make tea drinkers in the British Empire less dependent on China. He came home to Ireland and, in the course of improving his tea business, invented the first industrial air purification and cooling systems. A committed unionist, he nevertheless employed both loyalists and nationalists at his famous Sirocco factory in Belfast, and resisted all demands to sack his Catholic employees. Sir Samuel never recovered from the death of his son and heir on the Somme in 1916. He is dead at the age of 74. And that's the way of the world, August 1921. A hundred years from today A hundred years from today do join me for Stein's Song of the Week every week on Serenade Radio in the United Kingdom. This week's is a corker, one of those great universal songs that's been a hit in musical genres that didn't even exist when the guy wrote it. Doo-wop, rock, reggae. And all this composer ever wanted to do was write about cabins in the moonlight in the mountains somewhere way out west. But the one time he dropped all that stuff, he wrote a song for everyone. West, east, north, south. This Sunday on Serenade Radio, 5.30pm London time, which is 12.30pm in New York, 9.30am in Vancouver. So a kind of Sunday brunchy show here in the Americas and a Monday lunchy show in Australia. Wherever you are, I hope you'll check it out. One hundred years ago, August 13th, 1921, a wee band was born on the second floor of a Glasgow tenement to Willie and Isabella McDuffie. They named her Mary, and at the age of 13, she pretended to be 14 in order to enter a competition at the Glasgow Empire 
singing with the great British dance band of Roy Fox. She won five guineas and got a gig with the band. Mary Lee, as she became known, is still with us. Happy 100th birthday, Mary. Our mutual chum, Alan Dell, adored you. Here's one of my favorite records by Roy Fox and his orchestra, vocal refrain by Mary Lee from 1938. You went to my head like the sand of perfume in a stuffy room, but even more. You went to my head like an ice cream soda on a summer's day, but even more. You went to my feet, I couldn't walk, cause I was petrified. I was so scared, I would not have dared to talk, I was tongue-tied. You went to my head like a comb that's looking for a part. When you went to my head, baby, you went right to my heart. Mary Lee singing with the Roy Fox Orchestra in August 1938, a few days before her 17th birthday. Not you go to my head, but you went to my head. 73 years later, there are a lot more candles on the cake. Many happy returns. Coming up this weekend at Stein Online, Mark Stein's Passing Parade, Rick McGuinness at the movies, a little bit of poetry and music, and our ongoing serialization of Jack London's Burning Daylight, plus continuing coverage of an imploding superpower and the Americans abandoned behind Taliban lines. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.